Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. And we're very fortunate today to have with us James Swanson, uh, the leading authority on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, So, uh, James, welcome. Thank you, Um, Mike. Could we start off by saying, how is it that you became interested in Lincoln in general and in the assassination in particular? Well, it really began uh, when I was born. I was born on February 12th, Abraham Lincoln's birthday. And even better, I was born in Illinois. And as you know, Michael, we like to claim Lincoln in Illinois. Kentucky, where he was born, Indiana, where he lived as a boy. What are those places? Lincoln was from Illinois. (laughs) So I would go to the Chicago Historical Society as a little boy and visit the Lincoln deathbed and other important Lincoln relics and manuscripts there. And uh, Charles Gunther, the Chicago candy millionaire in the early 1900s, purchased the furnishings of the death room at the Peterson House and displayed them there. So I got interested that way. Then when I was 10 years old, my grandmother, her work for the last great age of the tabloid Chicago newspapers, uh, sort of the Ben Hecht era, uh, gave me for my birthday when I was 10 years old, a framed engraving of John Wilkes Booth Derringer pistol that he used to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. And framed with that engraving was a clipping from the Chicago Tribune from April 15, 1865, the morning that Abraham Lincoln died. And that clipping had sensational headlines. The president shot at Ford's Theater, John Wilkes Booth, the famous actor, the assassin. He jumped to the stage and then ran out the stage door. And then, and someone had cut off the clipping in mid-sentence. And I hung that framed photo, that Derringer pistol on my wall in my bedroom. And I must have read it hundreds of times as a child. And to my great pleasure, years later, when I was working on researching Manhunt, I acquired from my own research archive a complete collection of Chicago Tribunes from April and May 1865, including the complete issue from which that clipping was cut that inspired me to get interested in the story as a little boy. And you've been a collector of Lincolniana uh, for quite a while. Um, What are your favorite objects in your collection? Well, first the research materials. I have hundreds of Civil War newspapers, broadsides, handwritten letters from people writing about the assassination at the time. Uh, probably my two favorite things related to the assassination are I have a uh, lock of Abraham Lincoln's hair cut from his head the morning he died at the Peterson house and cut by Secretary of War Stanton. And it was done as a gift for Mary Jane Wells, one of Mary Lincoln's few friends in Washington. And it comes in an envelope that Stanton addressed to Mrs. Wells. And on the envelope, Mary Jane Wells wrote in her own hand, lock of our precious murder president's hair. And then she framed this lock of hair with flowers that had adorned Lincoln's coffin at the White House funeral on April 19th, 1865. So that really takes me back to the Peterson House back bedroom the morning that Lincoln died. Uh, My other favorite thing that connects to the assassination is a fragment of Laura Keene's dress, her costume from that night stained with the president's blood. There are five or six known swatches that still survive. The dress is long gone. We don't know what happened to it. But I, I have that piece also with a letter from Laura Keene's uh, 
son-in-law uh, who testifies to its authenticity. And all these swatches match. There's one in Springfield at the museum there. And all the swatches match. So we know that the, the five or six existing swatches are all part of the dress. In fact, two swatches match up in terms of their blood staining. If you put them side by side, you can tell they were contiguous oh. together on the dress. So probably those two things really take me back to the night that Lincoln died. Well, a lot of the blood that was shed in the box uh, was, was from Major Rathbone. Um, yes, people forget that three dresses were bloodied that night. First, Laura Keynes, because she made the, her way to the, the presidential box and she cradled Lincoln's head in her lap in Ford's theater. Then uh, Clara Harris's dress was bloodied with her fiance, Major Rathbone's blood. Then, in Lafayette Square, op opposite the White House, the dress of Fanny Seward, the young daughter of Secretary of State Seward, was also stained with blood during Lewis Powell's vicious knife attack against her father, simultaneous to Lincoln being shot at Ford's Theater. Oh, and, and you have great respect. Oh, last thing uh, about the blood relics. Uh, a great museum is uh, in Auburn, New York, the William Henry Seward House. The Seward House has in its collection bloodstained sheets sliced by Lewis Powell when he was repeatedly trying to stab uh, Secretary of State Seward. So that's a, also a strange relic that few people see because unfortunately more people need to learn about the Seward House in Auburn, New York and visit it. But that's one of the relics they have. Well, the Seward House in Auburn, which I visited a few years ago, I didn't know about the sheets, but it mm -hmm. has a fantastic painting by Thomas Cole, or at least it did. There was some talk about them uh, selling it off, but also it contains a photograph of Seward with all kinds of different diplomats. Seward, of course, had been the Secretary of State under Lincoln and Johnson. So from 1861 to 69, he held that position. And in one wall of that house, as you may recall, there are all kinds of photographs of Lincoln, I mean, of Seward with various diplomats from various countries, including a delegation from China with a lot of uh, obviously Chinese folks. Uh, but with a Caucasian right in the middle. And it turns out it was Anson Burlingame. It was my great-grandfather's cousin, uh, mm -hmm. who was uh, Lincoln's ambassador or minister, as they called him in those days, to China. And he had served in China for a number of years. And then when he told the Chinese that he was going back to the United States, the Chinese asked him if he would be a kind of freelance diplomat for them and negotiate trade and immigration agreements with the West. And so he came back to the United States as a Chinese diplomat, and he negotiated the Burlingame Treaty of 1868, which uh, allowed for increased Chinese immigration and, and trade. I'm gonna to apply to Walmart for a grant based on that. Uh, <laughs> and Michael, <laughs> so. here's an important question. Anyone who had that appointment under President Lincoln would have had a commission signed by Abraham Lincoln appointing him. Uh, before he had this other position with the Chinese. Do you know where his commission signed by Abraham Lincoln is? I don't. Uh, there, there's a very small collection of, of his papers. Unfortunately, it's hard to do a biography of him because there, there's no uh, extensive collection of papers. Uh, mm -hmm. And then his father, Joel Burlingame, uh, was a delegate from Oregon to the Republican National Convention in 1860. Uh, and he voted for Lincoln. And he was one of the uh, members of the special committee that went from Chicago to Springfield to announce formally to Lincoln that he had been nominated by his party for the presidency. 
That become a Lincoln scholar right there. Because uh, a broadside was printed uh, of the role of the Republican convention. So in alphabetical order, every man who attended that convention has his name printed on that broadside. Mm -hmm. and, and he was, to get from Oregon to Chicago in those days was really quite an effort. And he yes. happened, to be, and the, the two, uh, two of the delegates uh, who voted uh, as Oregon delegates were actually proxies. And one of them was Horace Greeley. Uh -huh. um, but, but he was the only, answer, Joel Burlingame was the only one actually from Oregon. Um, but anyway, that's, that's neither speaking here nor there. Speaking of the convention in Oregon also, if Abraham Lincoln got what he wanted earlier in his career, an appointment in Oregon, we would have never heard of him, right? That's true. That's true. And Mrs. Mrs. Lincoln took great credit for that because she apparently didn't want to live in the, in the very primitive conditions that were, were likely to be encountered in Oregon. And so she, mm -hmm. she vetoed Lincoln's, uh, he was probably uh, going to accept the pr uh, governorship of Oregon. Um, and it would have been a stepping stone to the Senate. And the Senate is where he really wanted to go uh, for okay. a long time. Uh, and then the presidency all of a sudden emerged. Um, so, but anyway, getting back to Fanny Seward, you're a big fan of Fanny Seward, as I recall. I am, I am. She's one of the great heroes of the, of the Lincoln assassination story. I have such affection for her. As you know, she kept a wonderful diary during her time in Washington. And it's so good, she could have been a writer. And it's very sad to me that she died at such a young age. age. And in fact, you know, during the uh, attack by Lewis Powell, she was in the bedroom with her father. He had been injured in this terrible carriage accident and wasn't mobile. And she was in the bedroom with uh, Sergeant Robertson, a soldier in the Veteran Reserve Corps, who was helping nurse Secretary of State Seward. And Lewis Powell got into the house by pretending to be a messenger from his doctor, Dr. Verdi, carrying a small package of medicine. And he forced his way in, forced his way up the steps. And then when he learned that Seward was in that bedroom, Fanny opened the door and spoke to her brother and said, what's going on? And then she said, father is sleeping. That told Lewis Powell, Seward was in that room. So he attacked the Seward son, tried to shoot him to death. The pistol on fired. He almost beat him to death. Then he burst into the room and Fanny Seward threw her body in front of Lewis Powell, who was six feet tall, 180 pounds, extremely strong. And she tried to fight off Lewis Powell. And it's a miracle she wasn't stabbed to death by Powell. And then uh, when Powell was driven off and she cried out, oh my God, father's dead. He had fallen out of bed. He was on the floor. He looked like an exsanguinated corpse. And he said, I'm not dead. Lock the house, call the police. And then Seward reached out and held her hand. as though to tell her my brave girl has done well tonight. It's a very touching story. And she's one of the great forgotten people in the story. There's a wonderful photograph of the two of them that I include in my book, Manhunt. And I want to make sure I showed a photo of, of her in my book. Uh -huh. Well, speaking of your book, how did you come to write Manhunt? Well, it's really the book that I'd always wanted to read since I was a child, but no one else had written. That might seem strange because as we know, there are over 20,000 books about Abraham Lincoln and at least a thousand of them touch on the assassination. But strangely, no one had ever written a week by week, day by day, hour by hour, and minute by minute account of, of the assassination. I really wanted to tell the story cinematically and withhold from the reader information that no one alive at the time would not have known until the 10th day, 
the ninth day, the 14th day. I wanted the reader to feel like they were learning the facts as they were happening in time, which was tough to do because it's like writing a book about the sinking of the Titanic. You know what happens at the end. The ship hits the iceberg and almost everybody drowns or dies of exposure on the sea in their life jackets. The trick was trying to persuade readers that they don't know what the ending is going to be. In fact, no one at the time knew how the story would end. It's not certain that Booth would have succeeded. It's not certain that Booth would not have escaped and never been seen again. So that's really how I tried to tell the story. And you do it very well. And, and you, I believe, have won an award for mystery writing, have you not? Yes, I, I've won the Edgar Award, which has been won by Stephen King and all, all the great mystery and thriller writers. But there's a category of nonfiction. And so uh, I was very proud to receive that. Uh, it was presented to me by my great friend Harlan Coben at the Edgar Award Ceremony in New York. And my mentor and great friend, Vincent Pugliosi, who wrote what I think is the most frightening book of the 20th century, Helter Skelter, the story of the Manson murders. Vince prosecuted Charles Manson. And so uh, Vince Pugliosi, I'm proud to say, won three Edgar Awards for his nonfiction writing. So I was thrilled to, uh, to be awarded one myself. Uh-huh. And did you, did you not write some of your book while sitting in Ford's Theater? I did. I did. I probably visited Ford's Theater a hundred times while I was writing Band Hunt and the Peterson House dozens of times. And I did write part of the book sitting in Ford's Theater uh, because I can't just write a book from archives only, from printed sources. I really need to go to the places history happened. So when I wrote about uh, Abraham Lincoln in my book Bloody Crimes, visiting his son Willie's tomb at Oak Hill Cemetery in Georgetown, I visited that tomb. The, the Charles Carroll tomb many times. I visited the president's box. I visited the places where Booth traveled during his escape. History to me comes alive best at the places where it happened. And so it's essential for me at least to go to where history unfolded. And that's a very important part of my writing. The relics, the documents, uh, the places. To me, that's always been part of history. Well, that's, that's an excellent point. That's been my experience too. Um, I meant to uh, mention at the beginning that uh, questions can be submitted uh, through the group chat uh, option on your screen, uh, and we will do our best to answer questions as they come in. So, uh, now, James, what are the biggest misconceptions about the assassination in your opinion? Well, there are probably two or three. The one I dislike the most is the idea that Secretary of War Stanton conspired against Abraham Lincoln and was somehow involved in the murder. It's absurd, it's defamatory, and it's false. The origin of this myth uh, can be blamed very much on the book, Why Was Lincoln Murdered? by Otto Eisenschimmel, uh, published in 1937. He also published some other books on the shadow of Lincoln's death in 1940 and some other things. Eisenschimmel didn't come out and say it. But he raised a series of questions that implied Secretary of War Stanton had foreknowledge or even participation in the murder of Lincoln. Then another book came out, I believe in the 1970s, called The Lincoln Murder Conspiracies, which came out and said it. It's simply not true. Edward M. Stanton loved Abraham Lincoln, though they had a tough beginning when they met each other in a legal case before the Civil War, and Stanton took out the other lawyers in the case for dinner and didn't invite Abraham Lincoln and thought he was a rough country bumpkin from the, the West, which Illinois was thought to be part of then. And I believe it was Stanton who called Lincoln the original guerrilla. 
And they did not have a good first meeting of a relationship. But during the war, after Lincoln got rid of Simon Cameron, the inept Secretary of War, and replaced him with Stanton, Lincoln found his true partner. In a way, as Lincoln found his true partner in Grant and Sherman and Sheridan, he found his true partner in Stanton. He rooted out corruption, fired incompetent officers, got rid of fraudulent contractors who were supplying the Union Army with inferior goods. Stanton is the man who organized the Union Army for Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln called him his Mars, his God of War. In fact, I'm paraphrasing now. Lincoln once said, Stanton is the rock upon which the waves of rebellion crash and are broken. And without him, I could not survive. You might know the, the verbatim quotation better than I, but that's the gist of it. And so Stanton was devastated. That's pretty close. As close as I can do it. Stanton was devastated by Abraham Lincoln's murder. It's absurd. It's ridiculous to believe that Edwin M. Stanton conspired against his beloved friend, Abraham Lincoln. It's simply not true. Another favorite of mine is the myth that John Wilkes Booth escaped the burning barn at the Garrett Farm on April 26, 1865, 12 days after he shot Abraham Lincoln. It was Booth. First of all, Possessions of Booth recovered from the, were recovered from the man shot at the Garrett Farm. A notebook with the handwriting of John Wilkes Booth describing his feelings during the escape. A stick pin from Dan Bryant inscribed to John Wilkes Booth was found in his body. Photographs of five of his favorite girlfriends were found in the possession of the man shot at the Garrett Farm. He was captured there with David Harrell, one of Booth's known accomplices. And when Booth's body was taken back to Washington, for autopsy aboard a U.S. ironclad and photographed by Alexander Gardner. That photograph has never been found. People who knew Booth in life identified him in death. There's no doubt in my mind that it was John Wilkes Booth who was shot and killed at the Garrett Farm. But a couple mm -hmm. men for decades claimed to be John Wilkes Booth. In fact, the corpse of one of them was essentially captured by someone. He was mummified and for decades, that corpse was displayed as the mummy of John Wilkes Booth at various state fairs and country fairs. I'm told, and it's not me, that a private collector owns that mummy to this day. But again, I don't own the mummy, uh, but someone owns it. Hmm. Well, what about the uh, theory that John Wilkes Booth was actually a Confederate agent carrying out the orders of the Confederate government? I don't believe in the Confederate conspiracy theory. That the classic version of that theory is that high officials of the Confederacy ordered the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Here's what I think the best evidence supports. During the Civil War, there were multiple conspiracies against Abraham Lincoln. Many of them were a joke. None of them, most of them weren't real. And no one ever actually tried to perpetrate them. There were plots to kill Lincoln with yellow fever, with, with, with poison, with uh, clothing infected with, with noxious uh, viruses. Uh, no one did what was obvious. It would have been easy to walk into Lincoln's office at the White House and shoot him at his table. You didn't need ID then. You just need to say, I, I want to see the president. And there was a decent chance you could see Abraham Lincoln. No one actually tried to do that. People weren't searched. These conspiracies were talked. There was a lot of cheap talk in wartime Washington. John Wilkes Booth was one of the many conspiracies organizing against Abraham Lincoln. He recruited several people, and he recruited other people whose names we still don't know to this day. His first plot, of course, was to kidnap Abraham Lincoln and hold him as hostage to the Confederacy. 
There is no doubt John Wilkes Booth encountered some Confederate agents and operatives because he worked out a plan to go farther and farther south with his captive Abraham Lincoln. He knew there was a system that Confederate agents used to go from north to south and south to north. One of them was John Surratt, the son of Mary Surratt. But Booth was not at the directions of the orders of the conspiracy. He was not doing it for pay. Booth was the master of his own conspiracy. He recruited David Harold. He recruited Lewis Powell. He recruited George Atzerodt. He tried to recruit other people, some people in New York, New York City. And so for a time, he recruited Michael O'Loughlin. And uh, not Ned Spangler, who was a stagehand of Ford's Theater, unjustly put on trial, in my opinion, at the conspirators' trial. And so Booth was the master of his own conspiracy. And his conspirators were not doing it out of loyalty to the Confederacy. They were doing it out of love and loyalty to John Wilkes Booth, the charismatic actor who had befriended them. Booth was not a snob. He liked people at all levels of society. He treated his friends to oysters and drinks and attention. He lavished them with the personal attention of this famous actor. And so that's how Booth's conspiracy got going. And that's what its nature was. And that's what its limitations were. So I don't believe that John Wilkes Booth was ever acting on instructions of the Confederacy. Oh, that's 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 a, a very cogent uh, argument. Uh, we have a question from one of our viewers. Uh, do you think Mary Surratt was guilty of conspiracy? Mary Surratt was guilty of some conspiracy. Mary Surratt, a 42-year-old widowed Catholic woman who operated a boarding house in Washington, D.C. You can go there today. It's the walk and roll Chinese restaurant. I've gone there myself on the anniversary of the assassination. I recommend that people visit the restaurant. And she owned a, owned a uh, country tavern in, in Surrattsville, about 12 miles south of D.C. in Maryland. Her son, John Harrison Surratt Jr., was certainly a Confederate agent and operative, a friend of John Wilkes Booth, a co-conspirator with Booth in the plot to kidnap Abraham Lincoln. I'm convinced that Mary Surratt knew without a doubt that her son and Booth and others were involved in the conspiracy to kidnap Abraham Lincoln. I don't think there can be any doubt of that. Booth visited her on the afternoon of the assassination. After that, she went to her country tavern and brought his binoculars or field glasses to her country tavern. And she also told the innkeeper, John Lloyd, at Booth's instructions, get the shooting irons ready to Spencer carbines that Booth and John Surratt had stashed there earlier. There'll be parties to call for them tonight. I don't believe that is absolute evidence that he told Mary Surratt, tonight I kill Lincoln. But she was involved in a criminal conspiracy to kidnap the president of the United States in the spring of 1865. Now, if you believe in the conspiracy rules of felony murder, fellow conspirators in a prior crime are guilty of a crime that follows up that they don't know about. So by conspiring to kidnap Abraham Lincoln, Mary Surratt was in a sense guilty of the murder plot of Booth's deed because she could have exposed the conspiracy to kidnap Lincoln. Plus, she behaved very suspiciously when soldiers came to question her. And unfortunately for Mary, the moment she was being questioned, Lewis Powell showed up at her doorstep carrying a pickaxe and the soldier said, uh, come in, why are you here? And Lewis Powell said, well, Mrs. Surratt hired me to come and dig a gutter for her. And the officer said, at two o'clock in the morning? And then they brought him into the house and held a lantern up and said, Mrs. Surratt, do you know this man? Powell had visited her house. Mary Surratt knew him, but she said, I swear before God, I've never seen him before. Well, that triggered her immediate arrest. 
So her suspicious behavior, plus her involvement, I believe, in the plot to kidnap Abraham Lincoln, sealed her fate. If her son, John Surratt, had been captured, I'm convinced he would have been hanged and not Mary. She would have been spared. But her behavior was so suspicious, and people were furious that her son escaped. Mary Surratt was executed along with three other conspirators on July 7, 1865. I myself might have sentenced her to prison. I think I would have spared her life because the evidence was not there that she knew about the murder of Abraham Lincoln. Her son was more guilty than she was. So she was guilty of something. She was not the entirely innocent woman who was railroaded, nor was Dr. Mudd. Dr. Mudd should have been hanged. Why? He was deeply involved in Booth's plot. The myth of the innocent country physician who knew nothing is that it's a myth. John Wilkes Booth visited him and spent the night at his house. He took Booth horse shopping during the conspiracy plot. Mudd and Booth met in Washington. They had drinks privately with other conspirators at a hotel. Then when Booth arrived at the house, the night he shot Lincoln, Booth wasn't planning on going there. I'm convinced that Booth did not tell Mudd in advance he was gonna kill Lincoln. The only reason Booth went to Mudd's house because he injured his leg jumping to the stage at Ford's Theater. But when Booth arrived at Mudd's farmhouse in the middle of the night, Mudd knew exactly who it was. It would be like Brad Pitt would visit you and go automobile shopping with you and then spend the night at your house. Then he shows up a few months later and says, uh, hi, my leg's broken, can you help me? You would know exactly who it is. It's absurd that John Wilkes Booth was not recognized by Dr. Mudd. And we know this, Dr. Mudd did not know that Booth had done this. Booth did not, and David Harrell did not tell Mudd that they had killed Abraham Lincoln, that they had conspired to kill Secretary of State Seward. Here's what happened. Dr. Mudd and David Harold rode into town. Then they saw soldiers and the soldiers said, Lincoln was shot. He was shot by John Wilkes Booth. And then after Mudd thought, oh my goodness, Booth is at my house. And if they found out he's at my house, they're not gonna believe me that I don't know him. I'm gonna implicate myself. David Harold rushed back to the farm and told Booth, soldiers are in town. Mudd then returned and said to Booth, what have you done? You've implicated me. Mudd then said, I won't, I won't tell anyone, but you gotta go. Get out of here, I'll help you. And in fact, Mudd waited to tell soldiers that a stranger came. Then when the soldiers came, Mudd said he went that way when Booth had really gone the other way. Then when the soldiers showed Mudd photographs of Booth, Mudd said, I don't recognize that man. I don't know who it could be. Then later he said, oh, he does look a little familiar. Oh, by the way, uh, it's Booth. Uh, and I kind of knew Booth too. Mudd kept implicating himself more and more by being so deceptive. And then of course, soldiers found Booth's boot under, hidden under a bed. Mudd had cut that boot off, Booth, boot off Booth's leg and put him in a splint. Well, at the top of the boot, inside, big cavalry type boot, it was written, J. Wilkes Booth. And so all that evidence made, look, made Mudd look very guilty. Mudd is lucky that by one vote, there were nine members of the military commission. It would take six out of nine to execute someone. The vote to hang Dr. Mudd was five to four. So by one vote, Dr. Mudd's life was spared. And then in 1869, President Andrew Johnson pardoned him and uh, he left the Dry Tortugas prison and came back to Maryland 
and lived out the rest of his life. Uh, Maud was very lucky to survive this episode. Well, so, so Mudd almost uh, was executed. Uh, that segues into another question that uh, a viewer has submitted. How close did Lincoln come to avoid being shot? Might Parker have saved him if he'd stayed at his post or would he have admitted Booth? And would, if Grant had been with the presidential party, would that have made it very unlikely that Booth would have succeeded? Well, if the Grants had accompanied Lincoln to the theater, I believe there's a good chance that Booth might not have been able to assassinate the president. Here's why. Lincoln would go places alone. Lincoln would sit places alone. Grant would not. He would travel with his military aides, his official military family. There is no doubt in my mind that Grant would have been attended by several officers and enlisted men who would have come into the theater with him. A few of them might have been in the box with General Grant. Remember, the war was not over. Lee might have surrendered April 9th at Appomattox to Grant, but Joe Johnston was still active. There was a Confederate army west of the Mississippi, Kirby Smith. Johnston hadn't surrendered in North Carolina. The war was still going on. So Grant would have needed to be available to send messages, receive messages. The War Department Telegraph Office was near the White House. So Grant could have been communicating there, or the office could have been communicating with him. And so, it would have been more difficult to assassinate Abraham Lincoln in the presence of Grant and his small coterie of uh, military officers. Uh, Booth might have gotten in the box anyway. Who would deny it? The famous actor, John Wilkes Booth, the right to come in and say hello to the president. But the act of reaching into his pocket, extending his arm, aiming a Derringer pistol at Lincoln's head, stabbing Major Rathbone would have been much more difficult for John Wilkes Booth. Now regarding Charles Forbes, and John Parker. Uh, John Parker was not a Secret Service agent. There was no Secret Service then. Uh, Forbes was a, a civilian employee of the White House. Forbes did see Booth approach the box. Forbes was sitting in a chair outside that first entry door to the box. Witnesses show that Booth displayed some sort of piece of paper, whether a calling card, a cartridge photograph of himself, or a handwritten note. Uh, we know that earlier that day, when Booth was plotting the assassination, he left a note for Andrew Johnson at his hotel. Don't wish to disturb you. Are you at home? In any event, it was not highly improper, improper for Forbes to allow Booth to enter the box. It would be today. But let's say someone like Brad Pitt or Taylor Swift would be at an event at the Kennedy Center and would go up to the president's box at the Kennedy Center and say, hello, could I say hello to the president? It would be normal to allow that kind of greeting, as it was normal in 1865 to allow a famous actor to come into the box. There's no reason that Charles Forbes should have stopped Booth from entering the box. But I do think it would have been much less likely for Booth to perpetrate the act if Grant and his military aides had been present that night. And also this, Lincoln, was in, was, of, right. Lincoln was in the act of turning away when Booth fired the shot. Lincoln saw something in the theater that distracted him. So Lincoln leaned forward in his rocking chair, turned to the left and leaned forward some more. And so Booth could have missed. If he had missed, the Derringer had a single shot only. There was no time to reload it with a ramrod. He was simply armed with a knife. And even though photographs from Lincoln in 1865 showed that he looked frail, his face was, was aged. Later, the doctors marveled at his physique. 
Lincoln was still the strong rail splitter from the West. Lincoln was six foot four, wiry and strong. Booth was shorter, athletic, but not as powerful as Abraham Lincoln. If Lincoln, if Booth had fired the pistol in this, Lincoln could have turned around and grabbed him. Lincoln could have hurled Booth out of the box to the stage. Lincoln could have choked him to death. Lincoln could have snapped Booth back. Remember, Lincoln is the guy who fought the Clary's Grove boys in those wrestling matches back in New Salem. Lincoln was a very tough customer. During the presidency, Lincoln could take a long splitting ax, a two and a half foot long, three foot long ax. He could raise it with his fingertips and hold it out horizontally from his body. Abraham Lincoln was still a powerful man in 1865. And if Lincoln had gotten the drop on Booth after Booth had missed, Lincoln could have taken Booth on, especially sitting there with his wife, Mary, to defend her. Lincoln would have done anything to protect her from being harmed by Booth. So Booth is lucky that Abraham Lincoln didn't see him coming. Booth is lucky that he didn't miss, because if he had, Lincoln would have dealt with him. Well, Booth was lucky because Grant wasn't there, among other things. And why wasn't yeah. Grant there? Yes. Well, uh, Mrs. Grant. Mary Lincoln had very few friends in official Washington. Most of the official wives in Washington hated Mary Lincoln. Uh, you're the expert on Mary Lincoln and, and what a bad character she really was. Uh, and so Mrs. Grant did not want to sit with her and attend a play. So General Grant gave the excuse, we're leaving town, going to visit my children, we're taking the train north to Pennsylvania. Sorry, Mr. President, we can't come. And so that's why Grant wasn't there. Uh, ultimately, Mary Lincoln was the reason Grant wasn't there, because Julia Grant did not want to enjoy night at the theater with Mary Lincoln. And um, there's another aspect to that story, which is not uh, well known. Uh, and Grant told this story uh, to his cabinet when he was president one day in 1869, when they, a normal cabinet meeting was scheduled and there wasn't a whole lot of business. So he started to tell war stories. And he told the story about how on uh, April 13th, uh, uh, the day before Lincoln was shot, um, he had agreed to go with his wife taking a carriage ride around Washington to see the brilliantly illuminated uh, windows and sights around town. But he had a bad headache that night and said, Grant, would you mind pinch hitting for me? And Grant said, sure. So Grant and the First Lady get into a carriage and a bunch of people standing outside the gate of the White House see what's going on and they, they give cheers for Grant. And Mrs. Lincoln is very upset because she thinks her husband should get cheers before Grant did. And so she started to get out of the carriage um, and Grant tried to restrain her. And, and uh, uh, then the, the crowd saw her and cheered for Lincoln. And so she was placated. Well, this happened again and again and again as the, as the carriage rolled throughout the streets of Washington. And so Grant said he didn't want to be <laughs> around Mrs. Lincoln uh, because that was very important embarrassing and if they went to the theater and Grant got cheers and, and the president didn't uh, it would be uh, a repeat of this very unpleasant experience he had had so both the general and his wife had reasons not to want to be in the box with Mrs. Lincoln so uh, yes well it points out something that that's often easy to forget so much of history is driven by character personality and people in, not in personal forces and you know you reminded me one of my favorite stories about Mary Lincoln uh, Lincoln was reviewing the troops, and Mary Lincoln was there, but also uh, General Ord was there, and uh, Mrs. Uh, Ord was there also on horseback. I think her name was Julia Ord, as I recall. And so Mary Lincoln excoriated uh, her husband in front of his 
high generals aboard the paddle boat. Lincoln just looked down in shame and embarrassment. And Mary Lincoln accused Mrs. Ord of impersonating Madame President and making the crowds think that she was the president's wife by riding so close to him. Um, Mary Lincoln was a very jealous, temperamental person. You're the expert on her, so this is the last thing I'll say about Mary Lincoln. My favorite reference to Mary Lincoln occurs in the diary of Benjamin Brown French, the Commissioner of Public Buildings in Washington. And French wrote that when Mary Lincoln was leaving Washington, you know, she stayed a month in the White House after the assassination. He, French wrote in his diary, she now leaves. It is fortunate that she goes. And I will not write down all the things I know about her, which related to her official corruption. Even and, yeah. and uh, so that enough said about Mary Lincoln for now. She did have a terrible life. One of her little boys died in Springfield. Her, her beloved son, William Lincoln, uh, died in 1862 in the White House. Tad had his own problems. Friends of theirs died in the war. Mary Lincoln had many challenges, but, and, and she, she cultivated Abraham Lincoln and she made him who he was early in life. He didn't know how to dress. Uh, he didn't know how to behave socially. Mary Lincoln saw that he possessed an X factor. She chose him over the other men who were courting her. Lincoln was not made for her, but she knew there was something special about him. So we can give her much credit for Lincoln's rise, but uh, she was also a troubled person. Amen. Now, why did Booth shoot Lincoln? What, what, what motivated Booth to commit the assassination? Well, I think there were, there were at least three reasons. Uh, but, you know, there were subparts of those reasons. Reason number one, hatred. Booth was a racist. He was pro-Confederate. And Booth was pro-slavery. And he thought Abraham Lincoln was a tyrant who brought down the South. Lincoln's re-election in November 1864 infuriated Booth. He wrote a kind of manifesto about that. And he thought the tyrant will reign now, now that he's been re-elected. There was a chance that General McClellan, as a Democratic candidate, was going to defeat Lincoln and end the war and let the South go. But Lincoln won, partly because of the soldier vote. So Booth wanted to avenge what Lincoln had done to the South. Secondly, he hoped that this dramatic act would somehow embolden the South to fight on. Somehow Booth thought that maybe the war wouldn't end. Maybe he could overturn the verdict of the battlefield. Maybe he could even overturn the Emancipation Proclamation by not only attacking Lincoln and killing him, but by also murdering Vice President Andrew Johnson, because that's what his cat's paw, George Atzerodt, was supposed to do. Also, by murdering Secretary of State William Seward. And so Booth thought he could topple some of the top officials of the government including General Grant, if he came to the theater, which was, had been advertised initially. And so Booth thought he could affect history. Third, of course, and this motive should not be uh, diminished, fame. Booth was very close to his sister, Asia. And one of my favorite books about the assassination is Asia Booth Clark's book about her brother. Uh, it was suppressed by her husband, the actor John Sleeper Clark, the comedian. And it was published 75 years later, and it talked about their childhood and her memories of that. John Wilkes had said to his beloved sister, fame, I must have fame. And if you look how Booth performed the assassination, he leaped to the stage, he faced the audience, he hadn't shaved his mustache to conceal himself, he paused in the middle of the stage, he thrust the bloody dagger in the air and cried out, Six Semper Tyrannus, 
which is the state motto of Virginia, thus always to tyrants. Then less known is the fact that as Booth turned to exit the theater and go through the, the uh, stage door and out to the alley where his horse was waiting, a couple witnesses heard Booth exult to himself, not to the owner, it seems, I have done it. This was his last performance on stage for the American people. Booth did not simply murder Abraham Lincoln, he performed the assassination. He broke the fourth wall between performer and audience. And so this was theatrical. In every aspect, this was a theatrical assassination. And then if you look at Booth's behavior at the Garrett Farmhouse 12 days later when the Union Cavalry arrived, Booth didn't want to surrender. He engaged the soldiers and officers in Shakespearean dialogue. He said things like, oh, to one of the officers, I, I see that candle you have, it illuminates you so I could shoot you right now, but I won't because I'm a gentleman. And then the officer says to another, put that candle down. And then Booth says, oh, uh, let me come out. I'll fight, your, I'll fight you one by one. And so he's gonna engage in a duel with almost 30 Union soldiers and their commanding officers. And then Booth says, uh, give me a chance, I'll fight you. Uh, one more stain on the old banner, like he's the Confederate hero in battle. And so Booth performed everything, even at the end, after he was shot and dragged from the burning barn to the front porch of the Garrett farmhouse. Booth said, tell my mother I die for my country. That's like a scripted line. Then, in one of his last, either his last words or very last words, he looks at his hands, he says, my hands, because he's essentially paralyzed. The soldiers have to hold up his hands. Booth looks at his hands and says, useless, useless. And that left an enigma for us. Did he mean I'm almost paralyzed, my hands are useless? Or did he mean my last mad act was useless? And of course, during this escape, he read the newspaper reviews of his crime, like an actor reading his reviews on stage. Booth lusted for fame, and he's got it. Hmm. Well, you mentioned Atzerodt, and one of our uh, viewers has said, uh, has asked, why did Atzerodt fail in his assignment to assassinate Vice President Johnson? Well, two obvious reasons. He was a drunk and a coward, and he, was, <laughs> he didn't want to be executed. <laughs> Uh, Atzerodt, a German immigrant, 35, 36-year-old, was part of Booth's conspiracy. He knew hunting. He, he was a boatman. He knew the, the territory of Maryland and Virginia, and Booth thought he might be useful. He was probably the least re reliable of Booth's conspirators. And so his mission was to go to the uh, Kirkwood House Hotel and knock on Johnson's door, and when Johnson answered, stab him or shoot him to death. In those days, the vice presidents didn't have an official residence, nor did they have any kind of proper protection. Atzerodt got drunk in the bar downstairs and thought, well, I don't think I'm going to do this. And in fact, at the meeting of the conspirators that night, April 14th, Booth and his conspirators met uh, at about eight o'clock at night at the uh, Herndon house for their last meal and last preparations. And Atzerodt said, uh, I don't think I'm going to kill Johnson. <laughs> That's not for me. And Booth said, uh, well, what will become of you? Atzerodt didn't know that Booth had already written a letter signing all their names that he handed to someone to give to the National Intelligence or newspaper to implicate them all. And so Atzerodt was already showing some reluctance to do it uh, earlier that night. He was a drinker. He was not committed to the cause of the Confederacy. He, he was a loyalist to Booth. And Atzerodt thought the better of it. And he tossed his, his knife aside. He pawned his pistol at a shop in Georgetown. And he thought he could just vanish from history 
Well, it wasn't that easy. Found, arrested him, and he was one of the four conspirators hanged on July 7, 1865. Well, another question related to that is, do you think that the military commission was the appropriate venue for trying the alleged assassins? Weren't they, that is, the commissioners, predisposed to find them guilty? They actually weren't predisposed to find them guilty. Uh, I think that putting aside the question, was the commission appropriate, which I'll, I'll consider in a second, was it a vengeful commission that wanted to execute everyone? No. People who were spared, Ned Spangler, the stagehand at Fort Cedar, was sentenced to six years in prison. Later, he was freed. Michael O'Loughlin, who was one of Booth's conspirators to kidnap the president, but was not present for the assassination, was given a life sentence in prison. Uh, unfortunately, he died in prison. Another one of Booth's co-conspirators was also sentenced to prison, but released uh, from Dred Tortugas, and he was pardoned. Dr. Mudd was sentenced to prison. So the commission didn't decide, let's just kill them all. They did judge levels of guilt. And so I don't believe any of the people the commission spared uh, should have been executed, but for Dr. Mudd, I, I might have suggested Dr. Mudd be executed, but the commission spared the people it should have spared. Then there's a question of David Harold. David Harold should have been executed. He rode with Booth during the 12 day escape. He guided Lewis Powell to Secretary of State Stewart's house where he was almost stabbed to death. Lewis Powell was an accomplice to the murder of Abraham Lincoln, and he deserved to be hanged for it. Lewis Powell deserved to be hanged. He almost stabbed Secretary of State Seward to death. He almost beat his son to death. He stabbed a war department messenger in the back. So Lewis Powell was obviously guilty of attempted murder, and he should have been hanged. Uh, George Atzerodt was a conspirator in a kidnapping plot and in a murder plot. If George Yatsarat had gone to the authorities at eight o'clock or 8.30 on April 14th and said, I've just left the hotel. John Wilkes Booth is planning to kill Abraham Lincoln tonight. You've got to stop him, save the president. If Yatsarat had revealed that knowledge, he could have saved Abraham Lincoln and saved his own life. But because Yatsarat knew the plot was underway to kill Abraham Lincoln and he did nothing, he was as guilty as John Wilkes Booth. So he too should have been executed. So three of the four who were executed definitely deserved it. And they also would have been executed by a civilian court. And so it's a myth that the conspiracy trial was unfair because it was a rough justice and executed people who shouldn't have been hanged. Three of the four undoubtedly should have been hanged. And three of the four who were spared should definitely have had their lives spared. And so uh, if you look at who was who, uh, I hope you'd agree that the military commission rendered appropriate verdicts. Uh, the reason the military tribunal was held, the theory was Washington DC was the headquarters of the United States Army and of the United States government in the time of a momentous civil war that was not over yet. It was thought that a Confederate conspiracy launched an attack on Washington to kill members of the cabinet. It was thought that Abraham Lincoln was commander in chief of the Army of the United States, which he was. And so for those reasons, uh, the Attorney General James Speed uh, issued an opinion that it was appropriate for the military commission to try the conspirators. Not everyone agreed. Lincoln's former Attorney General Edwin Bates thought it was not appropriate. The trial was open to the public. 
The testimony was published in the newspapers every day. So it was not a secret trial. It was not a closed trial. And also this, military commissions had tried hundreds, if not thousands of people during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln himself permitted trial by military commission. So it's not as though the government concocted some strange, bizarre theory to render unfair justice to the conspirators. Given the context of the times, when it happened, the nature of the guilt of each conspirator, uh, I believe appropriate justice was done to the conspirators. And you speak as a, as a lawyer, do you not? You, yes. You have a law degree, do you not? Yeah. Yes, I do. Okay. Um, now, one of the reasons that I emphasize in, in my book is um, the John Lewis Booth killed Abraham Lincoln, uh, or the, the spark that, that led him to make that decision that day. His hatred of Lincoln and his racism and all that were long standing. But what, what was it that triggered, that triggered, you should pardon the verb, um, the decision to, to murder Lincoln uh, that day? Uh, and that's because. Uh, I believe one of the main things was the speech that Lincoln gave on April 11th, 1865, two days after Robert E. Lee had surrendered. And uh, Lincoln gave a talk from a White House window to a large crowd, uh, which expected him to uh, give a victory lap salute to the Army and the Navy. We won. Let's hear it for the Army and the Navy. But instead, he gave a very sober analysis of the problems of Reconstruction. How should the 11 Confederate states um, be readmitted to the Union, be restored to their political position to allow them to have their own governors and legislatures and participate in Congress and all that? Um, and he talked about the experiment in Louisiana, uh, which he uh, had been fostering. And he said that some people don't like the uh, arrangements that have been made in Louisiana because black people were not enfranchised by the uh, state legislature. Uh, and he said, I would have preferred that the legislature had enfranchised blacks, at least those who had served in the army and those who were very intelligent, by which we assume he meant literate. And, uh, um, and Booth then turned to his colleagues and said, who had been uh, part of the uh, kidnap plot, and said, that means nigger citizenship, that's the last speech he's ever going to give. By God, I'm going to run him through. And so when he shot Lincoln, he was shooting Lincoln, not because he had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, not because he had uh, helped facilitate the passage of the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery throughout the nation, not just in the Confederate States, but because he had called for black voting rights. And so it's always seemed to me that Lincoln should be considered as much a martyr to black voting rights and civil rights as Martin Luther King or Medgar Evers, or any of those people who were murdered in the 1960s as they championed the civil rights revolution of that time. Uh, does that make sense to you? Yes. In, in fact, you know, we know what a racist Booth was. And we know that Booth was pro-slavery and also very pro-Confederate. And imagine the scene. Booth had been in New York City and he was getting drunk at the House of Lords Saloon on Houston Street. And he said to an actor friend, oh, what an excellent chance I had to kill the president on Inauguration Day. As we know, Booth attended the inauguration and was above Lincoln watching him give his, his inaugural address. But he didn't do anything. It was cheap talk. Booth didn't try to kill the president on Inauguration Day. 
and said he was in New York getting drunk. He comes back to Washington, Lee's surrender. Booth is getting more drunk in New York in here. And he says to a friend, oh, anything to chase away the blues. Booth is depressed. But that speech, I believe, re-triggered his animus and hatred of Abraham Lincoln. Think of it. Everyone is expecting Lincoln to come out and say, we won, let's celebrate. The union is great, damn the Confederacy. But instead he gets out and says, we gather tonight not in sorrow, but in gladness of heart. And doesn't take the credit himself. And then he starts talking about bringing the, the states back and giving blacks rights, giving ex-slaves rights that they never had before in America. It was a radical proposition that Lincoln wanted to do. And I'm sure it must have infuriated John Wilkes Booth. After all the insults he felt he had endured already, the defeat of the South, the Emancipation Proclamation. Now Lincoln is gonna allow them to vote? I have no doubt that that's what provoked John Wilkes Booth to say to his fellow conspirators, now I'll put him through, which is a 19th century phrase, which means now I'll kill him, now I'll get him. So I think you're right, Michael. Uh -huh. Now, um, aside from your book, if uh, listeners uh, and viewers would like to read another book about the assassination, what would you recommend? Well, I would recommend a few. George Bryan's Great American Myth, published in 1940, still holds up well. It's one of my favorite books on the assassination. I recommend it to everyone. You can learn a lot from it. I also recommend Asia Booth Clark's memoirs of her brother, John, uh, revealing psychological insights about her, her young brother. I also like a book by Francis Wilson, a friend of Harry Houdini's, published uh, in the 1920s about John Wilkes Booth. I also like Terry Alford's biography of John Wilkes Booth. So those, those are the ones- That's the first I, real book. Yes, it, it's the first mm -hmm. real modern biography mm -hmm. of John Wilkes Booth. Um, so we have those another are, question. Uh, Boston- Those are my favorites. We have another question here. Boston Corbett shot Wilkes, John Wilkes Booth, and was told to keep Booth alive. Was anything said or done because of this? And why did he shoot Booth when he was told not to shoot Booth? Well, it's a myth that the soldiers were told, don't shoot. They weren't given orders either way. They weren't given orders to take him alive. They weren't given orders to shoot him. Here's what happened. Boston Corbett, as you know, Michael, was the most eccentric character before the Civil War in Boston, when tempted by fallen women, he castrated himself with a pair of scissors. And the medical report still exists at Boston General Hospital. So he's a somewhat eccentric fellow to begin with. Uh, a gruesome report. Uh, those uh, who don't have strong stomachs should probably not read that report. In any event, uh, Corbett is there, he's a sergeant. He was a good soldier. He's stationed around the tobacco barn. It's a tobacco barn, which has vertical open spaces between the boards to let air in and dry the tobacco. So as the barn's on fire, under orders of the officers, Booth is visible to anyone peeking through those vertical open slats. Corbett has his pistol. He doesn't have his carbine out. He's got his uh, 44 caliber Colt Army revolver. He's watching Booth. He says, well, then a shot is fired. The officers rush, rush in, who shot that 
Who fired that shot? He committed suicide. No, he didn't. Someone shot him. Corbett said, God directed his hand. Then he said, he did it for this reason. He said, I was watching him. He had a carbine on his hip, holding it with one arm. He had a crutch under his other arm, a crutch made for him by Dr. Mudd. And he had two revolvers with him in his belt. Corbett says that Booth started to lower the carbine to the horizontal. And Corbett said he thought Booth was going to fire at one of the soldiers because Booth could see them through the slots in the barn. And so Corbett said to protect his men and prevent any of them from being injured by John Wilkes Booth, he fired the shot. And so Corbett was, had not been ordered to not fire. He was always thought to be odd and eccentric. In fact, one of the officers later said about him, yes, he always had a strange look in his eye. And so he was an oddball. Uh, and so that's what happened. That's what the evidence suggests about what happened at the Garrett farm. Uh, apparently, Corbett didn't, didn't do it out of vengeance, out of love of fame. Uh, he thought Booth was going to open fire with the carbine, and he says that's why he shot John Wilkes Booth. And unfortunately for Booth, uh, the bullet went right to his spine and uh, his vertebrae. And uh, I've actually seen that. I've held in my hands Booth's vertebrae penetrated by Corbett's fatal bullet. And uh, Booth didn't have a chance. It was a fatal wound. Well, he didn't. He didn't want to be captured, right? He so, in a sense, no. it was suicide by cop, or a variation yeah, I, of that. I think that's a good modern description. Booth had witnessed the hanging of John Brown. He didn't want to experience the indignities of the scaffold himself. You know, uh, the blood vessels bursting in his eyes, choking to death, the rope burned neck, other things, the loosened bowels. He didn't want that. wasn't for him. He wanted to die a hero's death. Booth had to have known that if he was taken alive, he'd be brought back to Washington and hanged for the murder of the president. He didn't want that. That's why he offered, in theatrical terms, to fight the soldiers to a duel. He said, I could have shot you several times. Let me come out. Give me a chance. And they told him, we don't want to kill you. We don't want to hurt you. We want to take you. We don't want to harm you. Booth knew the fate that awaited him. He somehow, he wanted to, he wanted to come out the door of that barn and fight the soldiers and be killed. I'm sure, but he did not want to be taken back to Washington alive and be put on trial. He wouldn't have been allowed to testify under conventions at the time. He and the other conspirators were not allowed to testify in their defense at the tribunal. So his, his great tenor voice, which had thrilled audiences and stages in Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, New Orleans, elsewhere, would have been silenced. Imagine John Wilkes Booth put on trial, not being allowed to speak. It would have been a fate worse than death for the ham in him, the actor in him. So Booth somehow wanted to engineer that he wouldn't be taken alive and brought back to Washington. I'm convinced of it. Uh-huh. Uh, well, we're getting close to an hour. So we, let's, let's have a final question that has been submitted by one of our listeners, viewers. And that is, what is your theory about what Stanton said right after Lincoln died on April 15th. Do you think he said now he belongs to the ages or now he belongs to the angels? Okay. I have a, I have a thought about that. First, the extrinsic evidence about who Stanton was, what his mindset was. This was a good friend of his. The president of the United States, the leader of the union, Father Abraham. Stanton was devastated. He was there all night. 
he couldn't believe what has happened. He thought the Confederacy was behind all this. The Union might be falling apart. He was under great stress and great tension. Secondly, Stanton was a very religious person. He was a man of faith. He was not a secular man. Third, Lincoln dies at 7.22 a.m. Then Stanton calls upon Reverend Dr. Gurley, Lincoln's minister, to pray. So it's a religious moment or a setting of faith. Then there's silence. Corporal James Tanner is there, a legless Union veteran who'd been injured in, in battle, had both legs shot off. He was a stenographer. That night, he had been keeping the notes of Stanton's interrogation of witnesses. Those stenographic pages still survive. They're at the Union League of Philadelphia. So the prayer has just been given. People are crying. Stanton is deeply moved and touched. What's logical for Stanton to say? A pseudo profound statement of now he belongs to the ages? Or is it more real for Stanton to say, now he belongs to the angels? Also, Corporal Tanner later said it was angels. So I think the best evidence, extrinsic, circumstantial, Corporal Tanner, I think it was angels, and that's how I wrote it. Uh -huh. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up. And thank you very much, James, uh, for participating. My, my and pleasure. thank you who've been uh, listening uh, or watching. Thanks for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show. Thank you.